0: Chapter 5, Part 2 of the Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Christ. In his present state and work. Part 2. The great proof the disciples advanced to the world for the truth of their message was the resurrection of Christ. It is a matter of fact and not opinion. They certified to it as eye witnesses, having seen Jesus after his resurrection. Paul gives the names of other witnesses and mentions five hundred seeing him at once. Their testimony was not apparently denied even by enemies of Christianity in the early centuries. The four evangelists are, acknowledged by even infidels, to have been veritable persons, and to have been of good character, and to have written unbiased accounts free of all praise of themselves, or even their master, and also free of all comment. They give names and places and dates, and the whole bears the marks of simple narratives of actual occurrences given in an unvarnished style, by every legal and literary rule of evidence. These are witnesses worthy of belief. It may be asked, Why did not Jesus publicly appear to all and not only to his own? He had before said, If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, through one rose from the dead. They disbelieved not for want of evidence, but for want of the to give up sin and live rightly. It is useless to further convince such. The gospel is a sieve. It sifts out the true. They had seen the dead raised and did not believe. Neither then nor now does God give further evidence to those who do not obey the evidence they already have. They can reject if they please, and theirs is the loss. The last view God has given the world of his Son is Christ on the cross, the saving view, and this is all they shall have until he comes again in glory. Among the evidences, of the resurrection are the many predictions of the scriptures and of jesus himself that he would rise from the dead these are so connected with the many other predictions regarding him which have been fulfilled as noted that all hang together as the rest were literally fulfilled so it is fair to believe were this also. The simple-minded Galileans were incapable of concocting such an intricate system of fraud and unable to carry it out among hating, watchful, and cunning enemies to a successful and undiscovered issue. The testimony of the Jews and the Roman soldiers who watched the sepulchre is not the least valuable as to the resurrection of jesus some of the guard came into the city and told the chief priests all the things that were come to pass and when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel they gave large money to the soldiers saying say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept and if this come to the governor's ears we will persuade him and rid you of care so they took the money and did as they were taught and this saying was spread abroad among the jews and continueth until this day this is full of valuable corroborative evidence. The whole plot is just what would be expected in case of a resurrection. The enemies of Jesus would have had to give out some explanation, and this was the one most likely to occur to them. The guard testified that the sepulchre was empty, the body gone. Here is direct testimony which cannot be disputed, and indeed is not by any, even unbelievers, that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb after the third day, which was the day he had set for his resurrection. They also testify that something unusual occurred which all were in excitement about, all this is just what would occur on the resurrection they do not go to pilate who would have condemned them to death for sleeping at their post of duty or for neglecting their charge they do go as we would expect to those most interested that is some of them came into the city and told what had happened. All were either not fit to go or afraid to venture until some security was had. The statement that they were asleep corroborates the scriptural narrative. They were asleep, but not in natural number. They admit they did not see what happened being asleep this also fits the scripture account and our sense of propriety jesus was seen first not by roman soldiers but by his own friends the improbable part of this account of the soldiers is their evidence as to what they knew happened while they were asleep the improbability of the panic-stricken disciples attempting such an adventure, the absence of anything to be accomplished by removing the body from one place to another, the difficulty of concealing for any time a dead body, and the certainty of its discovery in time by their foes and sure punishment for such an attempt, the impossibility of moving the great stone at the door of the sepulchre and removing the body without awaking the sleeping guard. All this stamps as false and foolish the story of the Jews. The value, however, of this account of theirs is this. It was the only other explanation of the empty sepulchre except the scripture account of the resurrection of Jesus. The evidences of the Resurrection embrace the customs and times of the church which have continued ever since. The change of the weekly day of rest and its name, the Lord's Day, the almost universal observance, by the professing followers of Jesus of the anniversary of the event, and what is to those who have knowledge of it the greatest proof of all the christian's spiritual recognition of him and the benefits of prayer in his name and countless blessings which come to them from this belief and the religion founded upon it no religion founded upon a lie or delusion could produce such effects as the Gospel of Jesus has ever since its announcement, and wherever it is known and received. The wide propagation of this belief and its acceptance by the best in every community and their adhesion to it are evidences which are of weight in candid minds. Christianity is its own evidence. Christianity and Christ are mutually corroborative. The resurrection of Jesus was a complete verification of all his claims for himself. He was thereby proved to be the Son of God, God thereby certified to himself and all his statements as true. It was God's witness to his finished and perfect work. If in anything Jesus had not fully obeyed God or failed to complete the work appointed to him in the keeping of all the law, the fulfilling of all the types, the making good of all the pledges accepted by him for man's salvation, the perfecting of the salvation of the believer, God would not have so certified to him finally the resurrection of jesus is god's warning to the world that there will be the day of judgment he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead this fact is the one great proof of the hereafter and all its glories and terrors the resurrection is the great fact for today the battle rages now along the line of the supernatural the credibility of many supernatural or unusual narratives of Scripture is denied, accounts such as the standing still of the sun at the word of Joshua, the accounts of creation and the garden of Eden, all these are minor events, and as compared with this astounding event, far more credible and less impossible. The one who can admit that Jesus rose from the dead can and should have no trouble in accepting any other narrative of scripture here then is the point of attack and defense here is the vital question if jesus rose from the dead all his claims are true christianity is as firm as the existence of god and the believers hope as sure and blessed as the risen and glorified Christ. On these great facts, the apostles based their gospel. They proclaimed a free worldwide salvation and called on all to believe and repent and be saved. They declared this way was by simple faith. If thou shalt confess with the mouth Jesus as Lord, and shall believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, though shalt be saved. On the other hand, they testify that whoever refuses Christ refuses God, salvation, and heaven. Peter preached, In none other is there salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein we must be saved and paul writes if any man loathed not the lord let him be anathema this gospel was with paul an exclusive one he wrote the church at corinth i determined not to know anything among you save jesus christ and him crucified he wrote to the churches in galatia though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preached unto you let him be anathema as we have said before so say i now again if any man preached unto you any gospel other than that which you received, let him be anathema. He did not mean by this that he never touched upon any other subject but that of the death of Christ. For he does in his epistles to the churches refer to many other subjects, but these were to Christians for Christian life. For the world, Paul had but one gospel, that of salvation and the means of salvation, faith in the crucified and risen Christ. Paul, therefore, preached to the world no political or social reforms, although the world sorely needed them in every direction. Misery, poverty, ignorance. Oppression and vice prevailed as it does not today, yet, we do not read of any efforts by the apostles to institute reforms of any kind save in the church itself. This is significant and cannot be passed by or ignored by those who have regard for the authority. Of apostolic example and teachings. We must ask why this disregard of the crying evils of their time and this exclusive concentration upon the single theme for the world of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. The call today we are told is for a practical gospel less theology, and more practical Christianity. We are told of the efficacy of the gospel of a love of breath. We are asked for more treasure on earth, even if we get less in heaven. We are assured our desire of converting men will, by preaching such a gospel, be greatly furthered, that people will be so attracted to the church and to Christ as to reach the result aimed at, that this is preaching the gospel. All this has a very taking sound, it seems to appeal to common sense and attracts practical people, the benevolent especially. That we are to let our light so shine There is no disputing. That the gospel is commended by its humanitarian works is also clear. That the unphilanthropic gospel would not be the gospel of Christ is also true. No one will do aught but approve of every effort to help or benefit the needy, whether in physical or social need. And the church is foremost in all benevolences, and always has been. But we are now considering the specific work of the church and the proposal to lessen this preaching and substitute for it humanitarian efforts of various kinds. Our reply to all this is that the gospel is the accomplishment of all reforms, by its very nature, operation, and effects. It is as expelling to all evil as light is to darkness. The method of the apostles was not to expel the darkness, but to turn on the light. It is the logical and scriptural way still. The testimony of history is conclusive as to the nature of the work of early christianity and its effects guizot writes christianity was in no way addressed to the social condition of man it distinctly disclaimed all interference with it it commanded the slave to obey his master it attacked none of the great evils none of the gross acts of injustice by which the social system of the day was disfigured yet who is there but will acknowledge that Christianity has been one of the greatest promoters of civilization and wherefore because it has changed the interior structure of man his opinions his sentiments because it has regarded his moral his intellectual character here then is the way to the social amelioration of man change his interior structure as Guizot terms it this the gospel does and nothing else ever pretends to accomplish it the preachers of the old apostolic gospel have been the world's benefactors. This gospel has been the fountain of all blessing wherever it has been received, as history testifies, where the gospel of the cross of Christ is proclaimed with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. These humanitarian and philanthropic efforts are sure to blossom out as spring, is sure to come in response to the annual return of the great solar source of light and heat. This is true of the individual, the community, and the world. We claim the gospel of the crucified Christ is the greatest humanitarian influence in the world has ever had. To put any external or humanitarian of philanthropic efforts first is to plant the tree upside down. Both roots and branches will wither. The gospel is minimized thereby. The pure gospel is withheld. The state of man is concealed and also his danger. The great sanctions of divine truth are unmentioned. The power of the Holy Spirit is withheld, conversions are few or weak, and the church is reduced to a mere organization for temporal or social or benevolent purposes, having lost the distinctive character which Christ gave his church as a witness for his truth. The salt having lost its savour, men trample it under their feet, for the world knows true from false in religion. The Church exists for a specific work, the proclamation in all the world of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ, as declared by himself and his apostles. This we dare not neglect for any other mission however good. Christ said, You have the poor always with you, and whensoever you will you can do them good. But me you have not always. Our opportunities and our time are limited. The spiritual work is above all others, and we cannot turn from it for any other work no matter how valuable. The future is far above the present, and the salvation of men for the future is in Scripture made the great thing. Doing good in a physical or social way is not necessary saving the soul for eternity and may not even contribute to it. When Jesus found the people poor enough too they were, following him for the loaves and fishes. He discontinued giving them. Lord Shaftesbury has left this record. I have been connected with many forms of humanitarian and benevolent works during fifty years, but I have not observed that men were thereby brought nearer to God. The Christian believes in eternity and its tremendous issues. It will make little difference in a short time what the material condition of it has been in this life, but it will make an eternal difference what his relation to God is. This, we believe, is established by faith in Christ and only so Therefore, is the one business of the Church to preach Christ. There is also a demand for another substitute for this gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. We are told the Sermon of the Mount and the other practical teachings of Jesus are gospel enough for the world, and to teach these to men, undoubtedly. If the world would live so, all would be well. But it has been shown that the experiment of all this has been tried. We have seen the most perfect system of ethics given to especially prepared people by the most extraordinary agencies, accompanied by demonstrations of the supernatural to impress them and help them observe it all, the greatest line of prophets and other ministers of its provisions. It was in a land secluded from contamination by the effects of the surrounding world. It was accompanied by temporal sanctions, which by blessings when they obeyed and adversities when they disobeyed made every motive of self-interest alive to its observance. All this was continued for centuries and worked out to a full and absolute demonstration. Heredity, environment and development have done their best. Failure is written on the whole demonstration. The law was a failure in Israel even as a social experiment. Man cannot be so saved even socially, still less spiritually, as Paul plainly declares. Now the commands of Christ are infinitely above those of Moses. They are spiritual and deal with looks and thoughts and purposes of the heart. Moses commands under such conditions were not and as paul tell us could not be kept because of the weakness of the flesh that is of human nature how then can we expect the spiritual commands of christ to be kept by the same human nature for it is the same in every age and land it has been shown how christ enables man to do so and when we follow his way we may hope to succeed but to work over and over the old unless experiment is worse than folly the order for and of christ's work is this go you therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. Here are two orders. First, make disciples. Second, teach them the commands of Christ. The teaching is for the disciples. There is no command here or elsewhere to teach the commands of Christ to the unrenegate there was no such teaching by the apostles and Christ talked them himself to Israel only but they are to be talked to the church the sermon of the mount and the other teachings of Christ form the laws of the church they are to be talked and obeyed. In this lies the purity and power of the church. To neglect these teachings is departing from Christ. This is the great lack of today. These teachings are even regarded as impractical. Yet the apostles and the early churches literally observed them and prospered thereby we must return again as believers to the life laid down for us by our Lord and Master. To the church, the apostles preached a far greater view of Christ than to Israel or the world. All he is to this, he is to his people, and far more in Christ's death, for the church there is seen a choice of it. A relationship to it, an efficacy for it, and the special purposes in it here and hereafter. The view of his people from the eternal past has been considered. The passage relating most pointedly to the relation of Christ in his death to the church is this. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having a spat or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, even sought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loved his own wife loved himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, even as Christ also the church because we are members of his body. This is the husband dying for the wife. This is more than the shepherd dying for the sheep, or a man dying for his friends, or Christ dying in the place of guilty man, or even the king dying for his subjects. There is a peculiar closeness of relation and affection in the motive, and a special purpose in the object in which does not exist in the other two classes. This identity of Christ with his people has been in part shown, aside from his being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was made like unto his brethren also. He had not only the common humanity, but he had what all mankind do not have, the nature of God, of which his people are partakers. Christ bore man's penalty of death for the original curse. He bore Israel's curse of the violated law, but his substitution for his people is far more. The identity of Christ with his people brought upon him the sense of shame and guilt for his people's sins. His attitude, as surely for the sins of the world, did not necessarily bring upon him this sense of guilt and shame, but only of responsibility. But as one of his people, He shared the feeling of the father in the wrongdoing of his child, or, to use the exact scriptural figure, the shame of the husband in the sins of his wife. There is a peculiar efficiency also in the death of Christ for his people. By the death of Christ, the salvation of all is made possible, and the salvation of the church is made certain. Christ had purposes also in his death for his people which he had not for the world. Another peculiarity of the scripture accounts of the scope of the death of Christ as affecting the church, is that it is spoken as a book or purchased by his blood. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood a people for god's own possession same word purchased the idea is a redemption within a redemption or to use a parable of christ the found treasure within the purchased field the benefits secured to the believer by the death of christ have been seen in the foregoing. They may be briefly seen in his scripture. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. God regards the believer as in Christ. It is a place of holiness. God sees no sin in him. All has been charged to Christ, and all Christ's merits credited to him. He is justified, that is, made right or righteous. It is a place of security. It is God that justifieth. who is he that condemneth, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. The resurrection of Christ was also far more to the Church than to Israel or the world. The resurrection of Jesus is spoken of as a type of the Christian's state and life. That like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. The Christian is spiritually a resurrected person, as if the believing thief had been buried with Christ literally in Joseph's tomb, and when Jesus rose had been raised with him and sent out to live out his life on earth. So is the Christian spiritually risen with Christ, all our hopes for the future depended on the resurrection of jesus but now hath christ been raised from the dead the first fruits of them that are asleep his resurrection makes ours certain the first sheaf assures the rest of the harvest and is a sample of the whole the resurrection of jesus is a type or more, an exempt plea of the resurrection of his people. As he rose, so will they, the descending angel, the opening graves, the quiet awakening, the rising in immortality, the same, and yet not the same, with all the powers Jesus had, and all the naturalness also we saw in him, are before us. The Apostle preached also a living, personal, present Christ. They regarded him as an actual person having a body and a locality. Paul and John attest to seeing and hearing him since his ascension. This is the vital element of Christianity. It is living and not a past and dead Christ we serve and trust in and look for. To think of Christ as a historical character only, is not enough to satisfy the claims of himself or his apostles for him. This is one phase of unbelief of today. Christ is regarded as one of several saviors, such as Confucius, Mohammed, Buddha. Zoroaster and others. We repudiate the classing of Christ with any other, even as their superior. All these, if they ever lived at all, were men only and are now dead, while Christ is a living being, and before him will Confucius and Mohammed and Zoroaster and all the so called saviors appear in judgment and he will assign them their places in eternity. The terms applied by the Apostles to Christ show their appreciation of him. He is to them a most glorious being. They never hold up Christ as an object of pity and to be received from sympathy. His past sufferings even are not so used Christ now is beyond the need of such consideration. He is represented under visible form and even described as to his appearance. John thus describes him one like unto a son of a man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle and his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as a snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth preceded a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength this agrees with the appearance seen by paul and there is no reason to doubt both were actual personal appearances of christ paul speaks of having seen the lord and this was his general appearance we see the same appearance as in jesus in the transfiguration he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sand and his garments became white as the light so that we may believe that this was not only the same christ but that he was in his own proper eternal state the purpose of giving us a picture of the rising Christ is to impress us with his actual existence, identity, and personality. Christ is not a conception or a doctrine, but a person who has a bodily form and can be seen and has been handled and felt. As the apostles testify, we have no reason believe he is any different now than he was after his resurrection during the time the apostles saw him. They speak of him as the same with whom they did eat and drink after he rose from the dead. A further reason for this picture being given us is that we may have an impression of his personality. We have no idea of what the earthly Jesus looked like. The pictures are wholly imaginative, and there is reason to believe are wide of the appearance Jesus must have had. But we are not to think of Christ as the rabbi of Judea. We shall never so see him, the view John gives is his appearance in which we shall know him in eternity. Further, this picture of that of a being of great dignity and glory. He is one to be thought of in greatest reverence and to be addressed accordingly. The sentimental terms of endearment, sometimes addresses to Christ, are wholly out of place. The silly songs, such as might be sung by lovers to each other, are seen to be worse than out of place, when compared with the dignity and reverence in such scenes as the following, a description with Jesus acknowledged of that of himself. I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each one had six wings with twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly and one cried unto another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory in such reverence christ is to be regarded and addressed even by his nearest and dearest disciples the attitude everywhere described of christ in his ascension glory is that of sitting at the right hand of god it is an exceedingly significant expression it describes his attitude toward the past, his present office and work, and his and our future. It is the position of one who has finished his work. His great humiliation and its results are accomplished. There is very great joy from the satisfaction in successful effort. This Christ has christ is infinitely satisfied with his work as approved by the father his position is also an element of his present honor power and glory the right hand of god is the next place in all these three to god himself it expresses more than all else the dignity of christ there is also nearness to God the Father in his position. This he prayed for when he said, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is now fulfilled. The eternal state was in the bosom of the Father. This may not correspond to it in all respects, but expresses more, the attitude of activity. In his present state, Christ is not idle. Christ is on the right hand of God as intercessor and advocate. The scriptures which teach this are many. It is Christ Jesus that died ye rather than was raised from the dead who is at the right hand of god who also ever maketh intercession for us christ has all the requisites of an advocate such a position and office require that the advocate possess the right relationship to both the parties with whom he has had to do He must have the wants of the supplicant, not only in his mind, but upon his heart. He must have access to and influence with the upper power to present them rightly and effectively. He must have a sufficient plea and be able to secure the favors of rights wanted. All this Christ has. The plea Christ presents for us is spoken of in Scripture, as his blood. It means, as we have seen, his own life poured out as man's ransom. It answers every accusation which might be brought against the believer, whether true or false. It can make up for all deficiencies in any case however great even though it be a whole life misspent or one coming at the last moment to christ as the thief upon the cross it can call for the greatest gifts from god its power as a plea is so great that when joined to the feeblest petition however unworthy the offerer it must prevail at the throne of infinite justice and power, still more at the throne of grace. But it must be borne in mind that all Christ obtained and continues to secure for his people, while in exact accord with full justice, so great is his plea, is asked for, not as justice, but as grace. Christ is not pleading at the judgment throne of sinners, but at the mercy seat of saints. A beautiful picture is presented in the Apocalypse of the presentation of the prayers of the people of God, and another angel came and stood over the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should add it unto the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before god out of the angel's hand this is during a special future time but represents the offering up of the prayers of all god's people at all times Christ's mediation is for his people's persons, sins, needs, prayers, and work. Their persons are his first care. The position of the believer has been considered. He is maintained in this position by and because of his identity with Christ. The believer in the sight of God is in Christ, that is, The body of believers and Christ are one. The figures to express this are many. Christ is the cornerstone on which the church is the building. Christ is the vine, the believers being branches. Christ is the husband, the church the wife. Christ is the head the church, the body. All these express the closest identity. There is this view, however, to be taken of the mediation of Christ for his people and distinguished from their sins and prayers and needs and work individually. The first is always spoken of in scripture as a finished work which needs no renewing. The prayer of Christ before his death may be taken as an illustration of his advocacy and intercession in general. These are the petitions in the prayer. I pray for them, I pray not for the world. Keep them in thy name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are keep them from the evil one, sanctify them in the truth, the word is truth. Neither for this alone do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word, that the world may believe that you didst send me, I will that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me in brief the desire of the heart of jesus for his people was that they may be united sanctified made efficient and glorified it will be seen from this that the burden of christ's intercession is first for their own sakes, and also for the sake of the world it is through the church he is to bless the world he has done everything for the world which can be done he has by his death brought it within the scope of grace and has sent his spirit to convince it of its need by convincing it of sin righteousness and judgment and now he leaves his people to carry his message of mercy to it. It is therefore the great care of Christ to see that his people are kept right. This he does by his intercession, the Holy Spirit, and the means of grace. The intercession of Christ for his people is that they may be kept in his name. This is equivalent to that in his exhortation, Abide in me, it is faith in him and faithfulness in adhesion to him. This union with Christ secures union with the Father, one as we are. The sanctity of his people is the great subject of Christ's work and intercession. The prayer shows the great means of sanctification. Sanctify them through the truth. The word is truth. The concern of Christ is that the word of God shall be kept before his people. The efficacy of the church depends upon its unity. That they all may be more, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In life, Jesus was continually urging his disciples to love one another. Here, in his intercessory prayer, is the same wish. The final wish of the prayer is the presence of his people with himself in glory. The sure, we in these later days have in this prayer lies in the petition for them that shall believe on me through their word the intercession of christ is also for his people individually first for their sins and if any man sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the Righteous. the devil is called the accuser of the brethren which accused them before god day and night devil and slanderer are the same word in greek every slanderer especially every slanderer of the people of christ is voicing the feelings of the devil the blood of jesus is the plea which answers or charges in heaven it can and thus cleanse our consciences from condemnation akin to this is the intercession of christ for the believer In his times of trial. Such was his intercession for Peter, when we may take as illustrative of all Simon, Simon, behold, Satan asked to have you, that he might shift you as wit. But I made supplication for thee, that the faith fail not. And do thou, when once thou hast turned again, establish the brethren. Here Satan asked and obtained permission to sift this chosen band, for the word you is plural, while thee is singular. Christ undoubtedly interceded for all, but out of them he makes a special mention of one especially weak on a certain bounted point. And soon to be tempted, on a trying occasion. And so Christ said to Peter, "I have prayed for thee." He singles out special persons for a special intercession, and care at critical times in their lives. Christ foresees these times of sifting or searching, and knows the certain result if we are left to our own boasted consecration and love and holiness and determination to hold out and to be faithful to the end. And all this we so often utter or think. If it were not for the faithfulness of our loving, patient intercessor, we would make awful and shameful wreck of our professions but I made supplication for thee that the faith fail not is the anchor which holds us when all else has given way there is one kind of intercession our Lord said needed not to be made in that day you shall ask in my name and I shall not unto you, that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loved you. This is not a declaration that he will not pray the Father for us, but that the Father does not so require to be interceded with. The use of the name of Christ, however, is equivalent to his advocacy in person. The believer has two advocates. He will give you another comforter, paraclet, or advocate, same word, that he may be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Paul refers to the office and effect of the advocacy of the Holy Spirit in the believer in these words and in like manner the spirit also helpeth our infirmity for we know not how to pray as we ought but the spirit himself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The prayers which are inspired of the Holy Spirit need no farther advocacy. In these two advocates, Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have the common figures of the counselor and the barrister. The one advising privately and preparing for the case and inspiring the whole movement, and the other presenting publicly in court the case as thus prepared, both in communication with each other and devoted to the interests of the client. Such a case as the High Court of Grace is certain of success. Here, then, are four great elements of power in the believers' prayers the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the use of the name Christ, the personal intercession of Christ, and the love of God himself for the believer. End of chapter 5, part 2. Recording by Aries Sancho.